Father God, thank you so much that we could gather, that we could focus on you, that we could focus on your son, the beautiful gift that you gave for us. So Father, thank you for the gift of Christ above all else. If you just stopped there and gave us nothing else, that would be great. So we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and for who he is. And as we prepare now to open your word and study this person called Jesus and his impact on our lives, we pray that you would uh, show us from your word how he is so relevant to everything we face today, how he does indeed change everything. So we ask you to do that now as you teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Open your Bibles. Let's go to Luke chapter 23 today. Luke chapter 23. We're in a series called Something Changes Everything. And we're filling in that blank and we're understanding that as we're going through this short series, it's actually going to go a four-week series. started last week when Ryan kind of took us to new heights in a sermon. Amen? Were you here? Yeah, you know, Ryan kind of kicked it off last week by just taking sermon excellence to a new height, literally, as he delivered a lot of it from the top of the wall, because what, he was studying like Zacchaeus, right, who was in a sycamore tree. Well, today, where he gave me the sermon on the thief on the cross. So I've got a nail, I've got a hammer and some rope, and I need a volunteer or two to come up and help me here, because... Maybe I'm not going to do that. Okay, maybe I won't do that. Yeah, I thought maybe I should deliver this one from the cross, but we'll let uh, Ryan figure that next week. Maybe next week he'll come out of the tomb or something. I'm not sure. But a great sermon. It was a great sermon. But what we're studying as Ryan and I unpack this four-week series are encounters with Jesus. Real people in real time bumping into Jesus, encountering Jesus in different scenarios Starting last week from a guy up in a sycamore tree as Jesus is preparing to enter Jerusalem. And, and today we're going to go all the way to the story of the cross. And, and then next week we'll have an encounter of some people that meet the risen Christ. And then finally, the week after Easter, don't miss this one, we're going to go to the beach with Jesus as the risen uh, Lord before he ascends back to heaven as he uh, surprises his disciples with breakfast at the beach. But in every story, it's about encounters with Jesus and seeing that those encounters change everything for these individuals and for us. Life is full of what I call high-change moments, encounters that seem to change everything. They're usually events or people. They can be really good news or sometimes really bad news, but the impact of those encounters mark us. They shape us. They kind of create a new reality for us the rest of our lives. For me, that list of highs and lows in my own life has largely, as I thought about it this week, revolved around people. Events have small impact, but people change us. As I thought about what would be the encounters in my life, the first was just the family I was born into in that great state of West Virginia. I know you're all Mountaineer fans. Now, the state of West Virginia where my mom and my dad had such an impact on my life. 
who moved our family from uh, my grandfather's existence as a coal miner. Um, one of my two grandfathers died of black lung disease as a result of that. And, and my grandparents wanted to get their families out of the coal mines. So they moved and went into World War II and came out and got different jobs. And as a result, they, they, I, I was raised in a whole different environment. was able to go to college and get an education and do other things. And, and I think how different my life would have been if my parents had not just done that, but I was blessed with two parents. They weren't perfect parents, but they loved Jesus. They introduced me to Christ. As I think a little bit further in life, it was a coach. A guy named uh, Jim McGee. Just a, a football coach. P.E. teacher. Who, in the life of a ninth grade student, began to have an impact in my life because he also believed that following Jesus was compatible with something like a young man's life and playing football. Oh yeah, that's me. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's me. That's 130 pounds of raw terror. <laughs> Somehow I don't see that striking fear into any defensive lineman, and I guarantee it didn't. But then a couple years after that, that's me in the ninth grade. A couple years after that, yeah, that's a lady that changed my life. So I met this young 10th grader when I first met her named Becky Hogsett. And uh, with a name like that, she wanted to get married. Uh, oh, I hope her parents don't listen to this sermon. That's just a joke. But yeah, that was one good-looking lady. And you know, she changed everything. Can you imagine the difference that day in my life, 1974 made, as we were married? She changed everything. I haven't changed a bit. <laughs> yeah. Some of us have a lot of change. You can take that away. But life is full of highs and lows that shape us, change us, and almost always involve encounters with people. Encounters with people. I could go on and talk about the birth of my three kids, a key professor uh, who became a friend and a mentor who's now with the Lord. Um, but all of us have those encounters. Last week, Ryan introduced us to Zacchaeus and his encounter with Jesus from way up in a tree and then over dinner at his house, changed everything for this man. Now Zacchaeus, as you learned last week, was a wealthy man. He would have had the big house in town. He ate the best food. He served the best wine to his guests. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. Zacchaeus, in the eyes of those who live by material things, was living the good life. But yet he was empty on the inside. He was not satisfied. And therefore he knew that his soul needed something and Jesus ended up being what satisfied him. Today we're going to learn from another encounter with another man that meets Jesus, but if Zacchaeus was over here on the spectrum of how you are living the good life, wealthy, blessed, we're going to go to the other extreme. We're going to meet a man who meets Jesus with nothing in his pocket. In fact, he has no pockets when we meet him. He has nothing in his pockets. He has no pockets. 
He's hanging with just a loincloth probably on a cross, penniless, unable to do anything and knowing that his life is being bled out of him. You go from a wealthy man who has everything but really has nothing to a man today who has nothing but is about to gain everything. So open the word. Let's go to Luke chapter 23 and we're going to meet this man. We don't know his name. He's just been nicknamed over the years the thief on the cross. The fact of the matter is he's not just a thief. He's probably almost certainly also a murderer who kills the people he robs because the Romans didn't crucify thieves, but they crucified murderers. So history tells us he was probably way more than your average little picket, pock, picket, uh, pickpocket kind of a thief. Pock, picket, picket, pocket, right? What is it? Okay, pot. Thank you. Pick, pocket, thief. Say it with me. Pick, pocket, thief. Yeah. He was much worse than that. We're going to listen in on a conversation between him and Jesus and study it. It's a conversation that only involves him saying nine words to Jesus, and Jesus responds with 13 words, a 22-word conversation. And it's going to teach us a ton of truth. Okay? So let's go to the Word and pick it up. First, the context. The context for this story in Luke 23 is the journey to the cross. Now, I've given you in your outline. Take out your outline. You're going to need it. You're going to need it, I guarantee you, as you take some notes, hopefully, on the message. But in this outline, you're going to notice the journey on the cross. I've given you John chapter 19, 16 to 30. It's one of the other gospel accounts of this story. We're not going to take time to read it today, but I want you to realize that if you study John 19, so read it on your own time this week, what you begin to learn in John 19 and what you begin to learn from Mark's gospel and also from Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is hung on the cross probably around 9 a.m. So around 9 a.m. he is crucified. And it says in all accounts he's crucified between two criminals. In three of the accounts, that's all we learn about those guys. In fact, we learn one other thing. In two of the accounts, it says, and when people were making fun of Jesus on the cross, which we'll see in a minute, it says that the criminals he was crucified with were also mocking him and and, and harassing him and abusing him. So they begin the story with both these guys on the right and left side of Jesus on the cross abusing him. And we're going to pick up the story now and read from Luke's account. Luke's account, pick it up, let's begin in verse 35, or 33. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And we learn from the other Gospels, this is around 9 a.m. But Jesus, then he fast forward a little bit, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is the Messiah, the Christ of God, his chosen one, you've got to hear the sarcasm in their voice. So they're sneering at him. They're, 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 they're taunting him. The soldiers also joined in, mocking him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. 
There was an inscription put above his head on the cross that read, This is the King of the Jews. They put it in three languages because this was on a busy highway just outside of the city gates where people were coming and reading it. So they put it up in Aramaic and, and Greek and Hebrew so that everyone coming by, no matter where they're from, could read one of those. This is King of the Jews. But they did it in mockery. They had a fake crown that they pressed into his scalp with long thorns about this long. And, and so this has been a, an act of mockery and, and abuse. And then it says, And one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him. So now we go for something happens. We go from two of the criminals abusing him, which we know from the other Gospels, and now all of a sudden you fast forward. In fact, I think this is probably approaching the hour of noon. If you study the whole story, has been on the cross now for about three hours but luke kind of condenses it down and now he's fast forwarding to right before jesus dies as i read it at least that appears to be the flow of of these gospels if you read all four accounts he's suffering he's hanging and around noon the story kind of goes this way because now we we enter into this encounter on the cross He's being abused from all directions, the people, the rulers, the soldiers, and even from the other Gospels, we know that even these two criminals, robbers, probably murderers, are, are, are abusing him. And then they hear Jesus say this, Father, forgive them. For they Go back one. There we go. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So I want you to see the impact of that. Because I actually believe it's significant that that's the one thing that Luke records that these criminals hear him say. In fact, this statement by Jesus is not recorded by Matthew or Mark or, or John. It's only in Luke's gospel. And every gospel written from the perspective of the different people and authors, they're all accurate. And if you weave them together, you get more and more detail. But each gospel writer emphasizes different things. And for Luke, this seems to be the emphasis that Jesus, while being abused and tortured and, and being crucified in agonizing pain which he did not deserve he looks at the thieves on his right and his left he looks at the soldiers the rulers the people and probably looking at all of them he says father forgive them they don't know what they're doing i don't know about you but that probably wouldn't be the first words out of my mouth but that's what Jesus says. Now after that, it goes into what I call the tale of two thieves. <laughs> the one thief is fearful and frustrated and angry. And, and it says that one of the criminals, now we pick it up in the story, one of the criminals begins, verse 39, who was hanging there was hurling abuse at Jesus. He was not backing off. He says to Jesus, Are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. But the other one answered and rebuked him. Verse 40. And this is where it gets interesting. 
the other thief, all of a sudden, something has happened in his heart as he's dying on the cross. Something has changed from when it first began three hours earlier. And as we approach noon and the time when Christ is going to, uh, everything's about ready to get dark, and then he's going to hang on the cross and finally die around three in the afternoon probably. But we know this is at least before noon, and around that time, this thief tells his other friend and criminal, shut up. I'm not sure what language, but he rebuked him. That's, you know, he probably used rougher language than that. But basically, the one thief now finally has heard enough from this other guy, and he says to him, he, sees, he rebukes him, shut up! Can't you just shut up? And then he adds this statement. He says, he says, do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation as this one on the cross? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus responds and makes this promise to him. Jesus says this, and then he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Wow. Paradise. What's that? Paradise was the place of the righteous or the saved the righteous dead in the Old Testament would die, and they said they went to this place called Paradise. I don't have time to go into all the details, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful place. It's a place of eternal life. It's a place where you would be with God, forgiven of your sins, blessed and alive forever and ever, and awaiting the glory of the future eternal kingdom that was yet to come. There was something even better than paradise yet to, to come. It's called the new heaven and the new earth. It's the eternal heaven that they're going to go to. So paradise, though, think of it as heaven. But it's actually kind of the precursor to heaven. or the pre, it's, it's kind of the waiting place for the righteous dead. And they're with God, and it's a wonderful, glorious place to be. But yet, in the future, there'll be something even more glorious when Christ returns and creates a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever, our eternal destiny. And of course, that's opposed to the unrighteous dead. The unrighteous dead in the Old Testament went to a place referred to by one of three words, Sheol, or more commonly, Hades or hell. It's a place of the unrighteous, the unforgiven, a place of pain and suffering and punishment, which is later emptied into a thing called the lake of fire. So the bottom line is, paradise is the really good place you want to go to forever. It's a place of eternal life and blessing, whereas Sheol and Hades is where you do not want to go to. And this, this murder and thief is being promised eternal life by Jesus. Today, before this day's out, you're going to be with me in paradise. So why would Jesus say this to one thief and not to the other? What happened that caused Jesus to say this? What I want to show you is that basically Jesus sees in this man 
knowing his heart. Why? Because he had placed trust or simple faith in Jesus. He wasn't saying this to him as a reward for the fact that, hey, thanks for standing up for me on the cross. This is not a reward for that. What we see is the evidence of faith. You say, well, Dale, where, where, when does he pray a prayer? When does he like, you know, when, when does he fill out a card and say, I accept Jesus? You know, when does he take a stick and throw it in the fire? You know, when does he, you know, when, when does he do any of those things? Well, he's never been baptized. He's never, in fact, he's never even prayed a prayer. Because it's not praying a prayer that brings you to life in Christ. It's faith. The prayers that we pray whenever we've come to faith, I remember the day I prayed with my fifth grade Sunday school teacher. You know, that prayer didn't give me life. That prayer was an expression of my faith. I was placing my faith in Jesus. And, and prayers are good. I'm not against them. You know, saying a prayer to God and saying, God, wow. I believe, I trust you, I receive you as my Savior, my Lord. I put my trust in you. That, that's a good prayer to pray because it helps me know that I'm, I've, I've verbalized what's going on in my heart. So the fact that this thief on the cross, he doesn't have to bow his head on the cross and say, okay, Lord Jesus, blah, 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 would you blah, 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 amen. He doesn't do that. But, but something has changed in his heart. And here's what I see when I study this short nine words that he speaks. And what he says to the thief before that. Number one, it says he feared God. So what's it take to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? I think it's this same thing that the thief did. Number one, he showed his fear for God. He said to his buddy on the cross, do you not even fear God? There's a healthy fear of God. He recognized we're about to die. We're going to stand in the presence of God. Our lives are going to be judged and there is a healthy fear that you need, if you have never trusted in Christ, you should be afraid of death. Because unlike our culture, if you listen to the culture, you would think everyone who dies, doesn't matter how they live their lives, unless they're Hitler, they go to heaven. That's the media, that's the culture, that's the movies. Don't buy it. This man recognized, hey, you and I should both have a healthy fear of God. He realized that. Number two, he acknowledged his own sin and guilt. He said, this man has done nothing, but we're guilty. We deserve to die. He acknowledged his own sin and guilt. See, you and I need to be honest with God and say, I am a sinner. I deserve death and hell. That is what I, I don't deserve to go to heaven because I'm a sinner and God is pure and holy and, 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 the, and the penalty for my sin is death. But this man even in what he said, he said, we deserve what we're getting. He acknowledged his sin and guilt. Thirdly, he saw Jesus for who he was. He said, we are guilty. He's not. Don't you recognize, don't, don't, don't you even fear God? There's a chance he's actually referring to Jesus, by the way, when he says that. He saw Jesus as the innocent one being sacrificed. And then he humbled himself finally. And he, and he humbled himself seeking mercy from God and trusting Jesus to deliver as his Savior and King. See, notice what he, he says. Truly I say to you, he says to Jesus, uh, you know, he says, remember me. Truly I say today, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, 
this man, I don't believe this man understood the theology behind all that was happening. But what was clear was this. Jesus had said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, I'm going to bring about my kingdom. And even though he was dying on a cross, and everybody watching from the ground thinks, well, there's no way he's bringing about the kingdom, the guy next to him recognized Jesus for who he was, and Jesus, he believed that Jesus was the real deal. Jesus would deliver on his promise. And he just humbly seeking mercy, knowing that he needed forgiveness, knowing that he didn't deserve it. He just casts himself on Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm not just going to remember you, buddy. You're going to be with me in paradise today. Promised. So what we see is what's going on in this man's heart. You see that? What's going on in his heart is he has come to trust in and put his, lay his life in the hands of Jesus and say, Jesus, without you, I got no help. I mean, I got no chance of being in the kingdom of God someday, but unless you remember me. And, and I don't think he probably understood all the details of the atonement for his sin that was going on and everything else, but yet God responds to honest, humble faith. When we humble ourselves, we seek mercy from God. I haven't done anything to deserve this. And would you please deliver on your promise to bring me into your kingdom? And Jesus says, boom, I love that kind of faith. And in response to his simple faith, Jesus makes that incredible promise to him. Now, what do we learn from this and how do we apply it in our lives? I'm going to have to kind of give you this in the short notes. So here we go. I thought, where else in Scripture do I see what's going on here summarized and explained? And I found one verse that would do it. It's actually two verses. Galatians 2, 20 and 21 says this. Read it out loud with me. Let's read it together. Okay, ready to go. Here we go. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, delivered Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's a great verse. Let me just hit you some real quick highlights and write them down in this week. Number one, Jesus on the cross shows us He's making the payment for all my sin. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He was dying with my sins on His back and yours. And we, like the thief, have nothing to offer. When we come to God, it doesn't matter what you do, you got nothing to offer to God. You come to God as naked and penniless when it comes to spiritual things to offer as that thief was that day who had been a scoundrel for most of his life committed who knows what kinds of crimes and was being crucified for it and jesus gave him life why not because the thief had anything to offer but jesus had everything to give he was paying the penalty for that man's sins number two jesus on the cross was the proof of god's love to that man it's the proof of god's love for us 
Paul says in Galatians, the Son of God, I live by faith in the Son of God who delivered himself up the cross for me. We, like the thief, are motivated by his love. I actually think it's significant that right before this thief has a change of heart, at some point he hears Jesus looking around saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I personally think that the reason Luke includes that, that's probably the thing that, that's probably the moment that it broke the heart of that thief and got him to come to faith. So he's not asking God the Father to, Father, please fry them on the cross. Just send down some lightning. Just, just disintegrate them. That's, that's my prayer. But no, Jesus forgives them. And his grace being offered to even his enemies caught the heart of this man. We like Jesus, we like that thief, need to be motivated by the love that Christ demonstrates for us in dying for us. Number three, Jesus on the cross provides the basis of God's grace. I love the fact the Apostle Paul says, if righteousness would, could come through the law, that is through being moral and good and obedient and and obeying the law if that could bring us in a relationship with if that could make us righteous before god then christ died needlessly and he said but if you believe that you nullify the grace of god that's what he says in galatians 2 he says i'm not going to nullify the grace of god it's the grace of god that we are saved by grace that's a free gift You do nothing to earn it. If you think you've done one thing to earn your salvation, you just spit in the face of the grace of God and Christ on the cross. Because Christ didn't have to be on the cross. He could just come live a good life, do some miracles, teach some good things, teach us how to be nicer people, show us how to love. By the way, there are a lot of theologians these days that incorrectly teach that the reason Jesus died on the cross was to be a good example for us to show us how to love. Not true. Does it show us how to love? Yes. Wasn't the purpose, though. It's a secondary purpose. Because if he could just show us how to love, so we all go out and do that, be more sacrificial, more loving, and then we earn our way into heaven. That's a lie. But it's very common even in Christianity and in all other world religions that God sets an example for us and we follow his example and we be nicer people and that gets us into heaven. That is a lie. Because you can't make yourself nice enough to deal with your own sin. We all have it. So Christ pays the price for our sin. Christ proves to us how deeply God loves us. Number three, he provides the basis of God's grace so that we, like the thief, receive life as an undeserved free gift. See, we, like the thief, get life as a gift by grace. Number four, Christ on the cross gives me the object of my faith. Just like the thief looked to Jesus on the cross and said, I'm trusting in him. He's my only hope. We must place our faith or trust in Jesus. We have to trust Him to save us. Then we have to trust Him to send His Spirit to live in us, which He promises He does. And then we need to trust Him to walk by faith daily in Him. What is our responsibility? Faith. Our responsibility is simply we have to trust Him. You've got to believe God. You've got to trust Him. 
and then live in obedience because you're trusting Him and you, and you, and you trust that He supplies His Spirit and His power to help us pull this thing off. We, like the thief, only need to place our faith in Jesus. And then last but not least, we, like the thief, need to look to the Jesus resurrected alive as the ongoing source of my life that we like the thief can experience the life and the power of Christ's spirit within us daily see I really believe that thief received eternal life I think he was born again on the cross and then as a newly born follower of Jesus God enabled him to have courage and to and to rebuke his buddy That's probably the only good deed he ever did was he rebuked the big mouth on the other side of the cross. But even that was the first fruit of life that was flowing from Jesus through him. It's awesome. So we, like that, must daily learn to live in the power of Christ who's alive and who is in us by his Spirit. You know, as I thought about how to wrap this thing up, I think the thing that came to my mind was this, that we need to understand that in our lives, if you want to experience the power of Christ, um, then as you walk with Him, putting your faith and trust in Him daily. See, I like Galatians 2.20 when He says, And the life that I live now in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's what empowers us to be different, to be changed, and to walk in the power of Christ. I showed you this picture earlier of my wedding. That was a great day. Incredible day. But you know what it takes to turn that into this? That's Becky and I last week petting a koala bear in Australia. Now, if you notice, she appears to not just like the koala bear, she appears to at least like me. That is a miracle. And I mean that. Because to live with someone for almost 43 years... And to live with me for 43 years and still be willing to stay with me is a miracle. Because the only reason that we love each other 43 years later is because the life that we've been living for 43 years, never perfectly, we've had our ups and downs and conflicts and everything, but the life we've been living is by faith in the Son of God who loved us, gave Himself for us, and then enables us by His Spirit to be more like Jesus. Neither of us are always like Jesus. But yet, it's the power of Christ that enables you to persevere in a marriage, to learn to love in a way that makes life work. It's the power and the miracle of Christ. I had one more picture to turn those two 1974 newlyweds into the blessing portrayed in that final picture of my three married kids and my six grandkids in that picture, one more in heaven, one more on the way in that picture, by the way, the cute little skinny girl in the black dress, 
had a little thing baking in the oven. We learned about it while in Hawaii in that picture. So the blessing of that family, to be honest, is not because Becky and I are wonderful. It's because Christ is powerful. His word is true. When you follow it and obey it and live in dependence on him, then by God's grace, you can maybe have the joy of experiencing something like that. It's not that our family is not perfect, by the way, and neither will yours be. But if you want to have any chance of making relationships, whether it's friendships or marriage or family work, you do it when you walk by faith with Christ who delivered himself up for you. That's where life is found. So I end with the question, has Jesus on the cross and alive today changed your everything? Because he wants to. And if he hasn't done that for you yet, you can start that today. It doesn't matter what your past is. You can start that today by doing just what the thief on the cross did and saying, Lord, I'm at your mercy, but I see who you are, and I believe who you are, and I believe the truth of the Easter story, and I believe you're alive, and you died for me, for my sins, but you're alive today, and I put my trust in you you want to do that pray with me father thank you so much for the life that you've by your grace given to becky and i and to many in this room thank you for the life that you offer to everyone in this room if they will say to you this simple prayer lord jesus yeah in my heart i want you i believe in you i trust in you i believe you can deliver your promise to forgive me to give me eternal life and to give me your spirit by which I can live life today. I don't understand it all, but I believe and I trust you. In Christ's name, amen.